Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast. I'm Meg Steenberg, a 1L in Syracuse University's College of Law JDI program. I'm also a graduate of Georgetown University and have a master's in broadcast journalism from Syracuse University's Newhouse School of Communications. My status as a current law school student follows a career in journalism, politics, and state government. Joining us today is Sally Fisher-Curran, Esquire. Sally Curran is the executive director of the Volunteer Lawyers Project of Onondaga County Incorporated, a pro bono legal services organization serving low-income people throughout central New York. Addressing issues such as immigration, family matters, LGBT rights, homeless needs, and community economic development. Prior to this, Sally had a family law practice in Portland, Maine, where she provided more than 200 hours of pro bono service every year. Sally graduated summa cum laude from the University of Maine with degrees in Spanish language and women's studies and obtained her Juris Doctorate at the City University of New York College of Law. She is licensed to practice law in New York and Maine. She has served as an adjunct professor of law, heading the LGBT Community Clinic for Cornell Law. She serves on various boards and is a member of the New York State Bar Association President's Committee on Access to Justice and Committee on LGBT People and the Law, as well as co-chair of the Committee on Legal Aid. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I had the pleasure of listening to you speak a couple of months ago, and you have so much knowledge to impart. I thought you'd be perfect for this. Not long ago, you attended the New York State Bar Association meeting. And as I just mentioned, you're on the President's Committee on Access to Justice and Committee on LGBT People in the Law in particular. What are your priorities for the New York State Bar Association, and how do those efforts compare with other bars across the nation, if, if you know? Well, what I can say is that the New York State Bar Association, or NISBA as we call it, is an unquestionable leader in access to justice initiatives in the country. They've really taken leadership in supporting funding for legal aid for low-income community members, such as the money that the New York courts put aside every year. They, the New York courts is unique. They put aside $100 million a year for legal aid. And by comparison, the federal government puts together a little bit less or right around $500 million a year. So, I mean, we're talking about 20% of that is being matched just by New York State. It's really remarkable. But, of course, you know, every budget season, it's a battle to make sure that that funding remains in there. And the State Bar Association has made it one of its main priorities for quite some time. They also are supporting, really taking a lead in supporting a new ask for funding for immigration defense, which is really an interesting initiative. There is this statewide initiative to create a right to counsel in immigration proceedings, very similar to the right to counsel in criminal proceedings that um, has existed in all states for, you know, since the 60s, since the Gideon case. Mm -hmm. So it's really an exciting initiative. It'll be interesting to see if it's able to be funded, but the state bar is really doing some great work in that regard. 
Within the Committee on Legal Aid, we're looking at a couple of different issues that are more like internal and the ways that it'll affect our clients, issues like diversity and inclusion and anti-oppression and um, alternative dispute resolution. There's some big initiatives coming out of the state courts around ADR, and we're trying to figure out how does that affect our clients who might not have the same level of sophistication regarding the legal system as perhaps like an opposing counsel might. So if if we know that a huge percentage of the people that go into courts are unrepresented, how do we ensure that their rights are going to be are going to be upheld in ADR settings when they might not have access to an attorney in that setting? And the ADR stands for alternative dispute resolution, so mediation, okay. um, things like that. And so, what in that particular area in Central New York? What is the biggest need? Is it immigration? The biggest need in which sense? In the in the legal aid sense, which part of your daily work, what do you see the most need for? Boy, that is a hard question to answer because where the need most deeply lies depends somewhat on the population that you're talking about. So mm-hmm. overarching, we did a civil legal needs survey a couple of years ago, and the needs pretty closely aligned with federal surveys, just in the general population of folks that are, you know, have low income and can't afford an attorney, the biggest needs you see are housing, family law, employment law, and debt issues. And then coming in Mm. closely after that are things like healthcare issues, elder law issues, other items like that. Immigration is a tremendously important issue, but, you know, it only affects non-citizens. And so the percentage of the population that that affects is a lot smaller, but the consequences of those matters are so drastic and so vital in the lives of those individuals that that's why we're trying to analogize it to criminal law and say there needs to be a right to counsel because without representation, so for example, in in an immigration case, if you're applying for asylum and you're unrepresented, the likelihood that you'll be approved is probably under 10% is what the studies have found. And in some some countries of origin, it might be even lower than that. But the national average is under 10%. If you are represented by an attorney, the likelihood that you'll be approved drastically increases. It goes well above 50%. And in some regions, in some countries of origin, it goes up to 80, 90% approval um, when you're represented by an attorney. And when you're looking at an asylum case where if it's not approved, this person is going to be put into removal proceedings and sent back to this country where they have a genuine fear of returning. I mean, that is about as serious as it gets. You can hear the passion in your voice for students in law school right now, can they help in situations like this and with organizations like yours? How would you how would you instruct them to get involved? Absolutely. They can get involved and they can help. And I can say not only at our organization, but at pro bono organizations across the country and many legal aid organizations as well. Almost all legal aid organizations take on summer interns where people can work full time for anywhere from eight to 12 weeks. 
And during the school year, there's internship and externship opportunities where you're doing eight to 15 hours a week in that office. And when you're looking at these opportunities as a law student, you really want to get a sense of what's the kind of work that you'll have the opportunity to do and who will be supervising that work. Your work will always be supervised by an attorney, but depending on the needs of the organization and your interests, you could be doing a wide variety of things. At my organization, we use interns in so many different ways from Things like client intake, doing helping us doing some callbacks and screening, to drafting court forms, to doing in-depth legal research. So it really depends on the interest of the student, the programmatic needs. And then to a certain extent, there's always some luck of the draw. Does a really crazy case come in where we need some interesting legal research done? Did you know you always wanted to be a lawyer? I did not. When I uh, graduated from undergrad, I actually started a master's program in gender and the social sciences because I thought I wanted to go the academia route. But within about a semester, certainly within the first year, but within about a a semester, I decided that that was not the route for me. I really was interested in doing something more concrete to do direct advocacy. So when I say that, I mean, I certainly have friends who are professors in the social sciences, and they're doing amazing advocacy work in the community around access to justice or people's rights. But I really wanted to have a profession where every day I'd be going in and advocating for somebody. And I was learning a system that is very difficult for people to maneuver on their own and helping demystify that system and helping people with access to justice. So I left that program after a year. Well, actually, it was after a semester. And then took some time off to prep for law school and then went to law school. So much of your community advocacy is for the LGBT community. What is the biggest struggle right now legally for the LGBT community? So that's a a passion project that I've always cared so much about. I personally identify as LGBT, and so I think that that's where a lot of the passion for this comes from. And also, as a result, you know, I'm pretty deeply involved in the LGBT community, and you just see the needs all around you all the time. And it also tends to be an underserved community. It's sort of ends up being a, you know, once everything else is done, the leftovers can go to that community, you know? And so I've really tried to make sure that whatever we were doing, we were reaching out to the LGBT community and addressing whatever unique needs are coming out of there. And so on a national level and even statewide level, I'll say that there's no question that the biggest issue that is facing the LGBT community is discrimination. And that's certainly where the most interesting cases are progressing at this point. There's this this question that is out there in several different cases that were consolidated in front of the Supreme Court regarding the definition of sex under Title VII and whether or not sex can be read to include sexual orientation and gender identity or not. And so we have some really big decisions that are going to be coming down soon. It's already been argued, so we're just waiting to find out. And I have to say, it's a very anxiety-inducing time because we don't have 
a clear idea how this Supreme Court could rule. And many of us are very worried about how that could come out. It could really be quite a setback because realistically speaking, trying to work sexual orientation and gender identity into the non-discrimination statutes that we have on a federal level is going to be a real battle. So that's why, you know, different advocates went the court route. Locally, I'll say our LGBT program, the biggest number of cases that we get calls about are transgender name change and gender marker change. And that might seem like a fairly simple thing, but it, it has a really transformative effect upon the individual who is who's seeking that, you know, and it it is directly related to discrimination in so many ways because many people are you know, living their lives in the gender that they identify with are very clearly whatever that gender is. And the name that they were assigned at birth and the gender they were assigned at birth very clearly does not align with their gender. And so it can cause real problems from them, from anything like being having the wrong name shouted out at waiting rooms to getting harassed, trying to get services anywhere. So that's a really simple thing and a lot of, you know, legally simple thing that we're able to help with. And it has a lot, a very big impact in people's lives. And then it also is a good way for us to build trust in the community and start digging in deeper on those questions regarding discrimination. So out of law school, as you started mentioning earlier, you went to a legal aid organization Mm -hmm. in New York City, and then you joined a small firm in Maine. Mm -hmm. And you said, I'm going to go out on my own. And Mm -hmm. we can hear, we can hear that you're self-motivated. So it's probably (laughs) not a surprise to anybody, but you started your own firm less than two years after graduating. Is that correct? That is correct. Yep. So how do you, how did you go about that? How did you have that confidence to say, I can do this on my own? And what, what advice would you give to those who are listening who might say, you know what, that sounds like me? Well, so as you mentioned, I was in Maine at that time, which is where I'm from originally. And Maine, like many rural areas, is largely the legal community is comprised of solo or small firms. There are a few large practices in Maine, large law firms, but that is not the norm. And so when you're in a rural area, you start seeing that access to justice means making sure that you are able to help provide those low, often what we call low bono, so lower cost um, Mm -hmm. legal services, especially many states like Maine, there's a lot less funding for legal aid. And as a result, there's a lot less availability of legal aid. And so you have a tremendous number of people who are not going to be able to get free legal assistance or low cost legal assistance. So when I decided to start my own firm, I did so with the mindset of sort of creating my own self-funding legal aid enterprise. So I spent a tremendous amount of my time, over 50% of my time, doing either court-appointed work in a family setting, so representing children, things like that, 
and doing pro bono work, both in family law and I was interested in immigration law. So I started taking on some pro bono cases in that area. And it's a really great way to learn a new area of law with supervision and support from a legal aid organization. And then the other half of my practice, I would do full pay, you know, clients that could afford me for doing divorce, custody, things like that. And in that way, I was able to sort of offset the free work I did. What I would say in terms of advice on how to start your own firm, the biggest things for me were having really strong mentors. I ended up, even though I created a a solo practice, I got linked up with a couple of much more experienced family law attorneys that did a variety of work. One really had a boutique adoption firm. Another one did predominantly guardian ad litem work for children. And another one did predominantly parent representation. And I did a little bit of all three of those things. And so I rented office space in the office that they shared. And As a result, I was able to get so much coaching and mentorship from those attorneys. And they also, whenever somebody couldn't really afford them but could afford an attorney, they would refer the clients over to me. And so it helped me develop my own client stream. That's really critical. When you're a young attorney, if you don't have a more experienced attorney built into your practice as a mentor, you really have to find those mentors because so much of the practice of law comes from being able to bounce ideas off of people. You know, this is my, this is the case I've got going on. My thought of how to approach it is this, what are your thoughts? Because so often in the law, there is no right or wrong answer. There's no concrete, you know, this is the obvious thing that will happen. It's really a question of judgment and figuring out how best to advocate for your client. And I appreciate you linking both of those together because I think it's fascinating how you did build through that community effort, which then naturally led to doing what you do now. And that community involvement Mm -hmm. is, is just so integral, not only to the success of the firm, but just to your success in that community Mm -hmm. as a human being. With that more experienced attorney, how do you go about finding the right one? When you say you look to those mentors, do you look with within that subject matter? Do you just say, do you just kind of, because we're still students, do you just go in and, and volunteer with that and say, can I, can I help you with a case? Can you help me with this case? What's the best way to go about that? I think the most important thing in trying to find a mentor is to try to figure out who are the attorneys that are well-respected in your community. So much about the practice of law, again, is based on the ethics of the attorney, knowing that you're with somebody who is going to act completely ethically and advocate strongly for their clients and is well-respected for doing good work. In my case, how I found that It actually, one of the attorneys was a longtime family friend who is one of the leaders in um, adoption law in Maine. And in her case, I mean, I knew her, so I, I, I knew I respected her, but also she's part of the American Academy of Adoption Attorneys. And I think that actually has a different title now because I think it also includes fertility attorneys as well. Mm -hmm. But in order, there are similar academies. There's an American Academy of Matrimonial Attorneys. There's various academies in the U.S. And in order to become a member of it, you have to have done 
thousands of cases and really be well-respected. And so that's a really good way to figure out who are the experts in our community is looking to those kinds of um, associations. The other thing I'll say is that as a law student, you know, a solo may or may not be able to take you on as an intern. It's a lot of work to oversee a law student intern and pro bono organizations like mine, we take that on and take it very seriously because for us, it's about building up the next generation of attorneys who will then go on to do pro bono work. But not all solo firms are able to take that on. But it doesn't hurt to ask. And, you know, so if you meet an attorney that you think would be a good mentor and a good person to learn from, just ask, you know, is there anything I can do to help? Would I, would I be able to come? Maybe they can't have you full time, but maybe they could have you come by a day a week or a couple of afternoons a week to help out. And you can really learn a lot that way. Oh, I can imagine. I I can only imagine being part of your clinic as well. I, you'd learn so much. What made it motivates you when you get out of bed every morning? What what motivates you to tackle the day? <laughs> that's always. I guess it depends on the day, right? <laughs> that's a that's a, a, quest, a difficult question to answer. But um, you know, I love the people I work with, and I love the work that we're doing. It feels like. The work we are doing is making an impact every single day. And I think that that's so important. And then the other big motivator is my family and my son, you know, and I, and I mentioned that in this setting because I do think it's really critical as lawyers that we not get lost in our work. I think it's critical that we establish starting in law school, a work-life balance and Hmm. It's hard. As lawyers, there is a tendency to overwork, and it's taught in law school. We are taught to overwork. And it's okay to work really hard. And certainly any of us, you know, if we have a trial coming up, you might be putting in crazy long days, seven days a week. But you have to balance it out with family time or with the passions that you have, whether it's, you know, for a while I was prior to having my son, I was really into doing triathlon. And it was just a great thing to focus my energy on outside of the office that in no way related to work to just unplug. So I think I think both of those are important. I think it's important to have a job where you feel like you're making a difference in people's lives and that you're enjoying it to whatever. I mean, nobody enjoys their job all the time, but to the extent possible, you're enjoying it. And then that you have some things that give you real meaning outside of work. You know, it's so important. And listening to you, I think, okay, I've got to do do a better job myself. Oh, it's uh, a journey, not a destination. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But, and, and I think you've already answered it, but is there any, is that your core piece of advice then for law school students? Or is there something else that you would add to that? Because that is, that's great advice. I think that that's really critical, making sure that you're taking care of yourself and prioritizing yourself as high as you would prioritize a client. I'm not saying every minute of the day, but carve out some times for yourself. And then the other thing I would say is there are so many different jobs that you can end up working coming out of law school. And if the first one doesn't work out, don't give up. 
You know, don't throw your hands up in the air. Just keep looking. And when you find that right fit, it's going to, you're going to have so much meaning in the work that you do. I see the lawyers around our community move between firms until they find the right fit, both in terms of practice area and in terms of the clientele they're working with. So, you know, have faith that it'll work out. I know for me, I really enjoyed my private practice, but I knew all along I'd rather be doing legal aid and and not have to do the the custody and divorce cases where I was doing it for a significant amount of pay. I really wanted to really just focus in on the people who didn't have access to justice on their own. And it took a couple of years to get there, but you know, I was able to build up the skill set both through my practice and through volunteer work on boards and things like that to be able to get this job and and so you just got to have faith that if you build those skills, you'll get to the job that you want. Well, you give hope and you are inspiring many. And this guidance and support is just amazing, not only to us, but to all of those you provide that guidance and support to every day on so many levels. Sally Fisher Curran, lawyer, executive director of Volunteer Lawyers Project. Thank you so much for joining us. It really was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Law Student Podcast. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can reach us on Facebook at ABA for Law Students and on Twitter at ABA LSD. You can also find all our Law Student Podcasts at hashtag ABA for Law Students on Facebook and Twitter. That's it for now. I'm Meg Steenberg. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.